Quaker.com podcast. My name is Ben Stone. This is podcast number 142, and today is May 10th, 2012. Uh, yesterday on the podcast, I uh, I kind of ran myself out of time at the end, and uh, I, I have a tendency to do that. I'm slow to get started on the podcast, and then I end up trying to cram too much at the end, and I generally end up not finishing part of the main point of what I want to get said. And I did that to, to myself on, on the last podcast. Um, so I want to pick back up on that in just a minute, and, and I want to clarify something I said about uh, majorities and there being a, you know, what to do about a majority or if, we, if it's majority is even possible. But before I do that, I had a, an email that I wanted to touch on because uh, it's, it's really something that I haven't talked much about lately, but it's something that's very central to why I'm doing this podcast, really. So let me just read parts of the email. I didn't get permission to read the whole email, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be real specific with it. But I, but I want to read the the part of it uh, so you can kind of at least hear the question. Um, it says, uh, "Hi Ben, I had another quick question for you. Where can I find some more literature on some of the origin theories that you espouse? I'm particularly interested in reading up on the Jericho origin of the state and the law lawgiver as original sin type stuff." Okay, now what this is in reference to is, um, you know, I, I've talked in some of the articles and I've made some general references. Some of the articles I did were I try to be fairly specific. But um, and and if I can re remember to do so, I'll put some links on today's uh, uh, podcast notes on the website for that at badquaker.com. But um, even then, uh, in those articles, I I really put more emphasis on um, the theory itself and not the documentation to support it. And part of the reason why is because there really is no documentation. I as far as I know and. You know, I don't want to pat, pat myself on the back, or I don't want to give myself credit uh, for something that I don't deserve. I think, I think I came to these conclusions on my own. It's possible that I may, you know, I've read so much stuff over the years. I, this would be a good time. I should give a disclaimer. Um, I've talked about this a couple times on the podcast. Usually, usually when Kai is with me and she'll either tease me a little bit or she'll get the topic going and then I'll comment on it a little bit. But um, uh, over the course of, you know, half a century that I've been walking around, I've had in excess of 35 concussions. And at one point, this was, uh, oh, and, and they're, they're from a variety of, uh, of, of, you know, ways that I got the concussions. But um, at one point around, 
I'm thinking 2002 or 2003, maybe 2004, I'm not sure exactly, uh, I went into a degenerative stage in my, uh, I, I guess for lack of a better term, in my brain tissue. And the uh, compounding effect, and this is the best we can figure. I've, I've gone to a lot of doctors, and we went through an unbelievable uh, amount of testing and so forth. So we're working strictly on theory here, but, um, but but that's really all you can do with anything like this until and until postmortem, when they can actually take the brain and slice it into tiny little wafers and look at it under a microscope, but. Um, saying all that to say this, what the theory is that the effect of having in excess of 35 concussions over the course of my life slowly built up uh, a, a condition where the brain began to very rapidly um, react to, to all these concussions. It, there wasn't a single concussion that we can really go to and say this one is the catalyst or you know there wasn't a, a specific event that we can say this caused this or whatever but uh, starting around 2002 uh, I began to have um, some serious brain deterioration serious uh, uh, um, yeah brain function just started going haywire on me and I went from uh, being in uh, uh, well I don't know if you'd call it a high-level... Yeah, it was kind of a high-level engineering setting in the aerospace industry where I was working, you know, really with some fairly high-level things and people. And I, within, oh, maybe six to eight months, I was in a condition where I, I essentially couldn't read or write. Now, that's not to say I didn't know my alphabet and things like that, what that means is I would look at something and I could tell that there were words on it and I could pretty much figure out what the words meant and everything like that. But I couldn't, I, my, my comprehension level dropped t to such a dramatic level that uh, reading was almost uh, impossible for me. And writing, I, again, I still all knew all my letters and everything like that. But hand control to get my hands to actually write uh, letters and and so forth was so overwhelming uh, mentally for me that just to write a few sentences would uh, by hand would completely exhaust me and I would literally uh, just be on the on the verge of going to sleep from exhaustion. Um, so at that point in time, this is a long way around to get to my to to answer this simple email question that came in, but it, but I haven't covered this stuff very well, so it's. You know, that's a good time to, to get it all out. Um, about that time, uh, you know, uh, it was obvious that I couldn't work anymore, and it was obvious that uh, something serious was going on. And, of course, they immediately they start looking for things like tumors and stuff, and we went just through an unbelievable, uh, you know, I say we, it was a whole family thing. Everybody around me was, uh, you know, was horribly worried, and we didn't know what was going to happen and everything. And... Um, really, that phase of brain deterioration sort of reached a plateau after about a year and a half or so of decline. And I was, I was really left in a, um, uh, a pretty confused state. Um, so wh 
what I had to start doing is I had to start teaching myself. Um, I don't know if you could hear Nikki there. She's uh, she's rousting around. I might have to interrupt the podcast and take her outside in a minute. Uh, both Nikki and Baggy are falling in and out of sleep right now, so I, I'm trying to get through the podcast before they decide that they need me. Anyway, um, so I went through that period of decline, and then it sort of uh, reached a plateau. And I, I, you know, I was just basically in a whole new world. Uh, most of everything. I, at one point in time, I could program in three different programming languages, and I was, you know, I was uh, very active at work uh, in the aerospace industry, and I was, you know, doing presentations and and saving the company that I worked for hundreds of thousands of dollars with new programs and. You know, I was leading meetings and explaining stuff to people how how to save money and cut costs and still maintain a workforce. And I was doing all this stuff. Um, and uh, then, you know, uh, there was like this awakening a year and a half later. And I realized I had no idea how to do any of those things. I couldn't, uh, I could barely put together a, a you know, thoughts into words and express myself. And I couldn't, I didn't have really any comprehension skills in reading. So I sat down with uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, books and I just started pounding through them over and over until I taught myself uh, how to, you know, reading comprehension. I, I taught myself a reading comprehension all from scratch, uh, basically. And then I branched out and started reading um, other uh, things from there and sort of taught myself, retaught myself how to uh, read and comprehend. And my writing, hand, you know, as far as handwriting, my writing skills uh, still really haven't returned. If I sit down, even something simple like filling out a check, you know, to write a check for something, for a bill or whatever, um, it it's a takes it takes a, a dramatic amount of effort for me just to write the words out and, and sign it and everything. And oftentimes my hand or my arms will start to knot and, and cramp and tighten up uh, in sort of a sort of the way you see some Parkinson's uh, symptoms. And that and that and that is some of the practical outworkings of the long term uh, effect of these brain injuries. I, I have a variety of Parkinson's like. Um, uh, symptoms. So then, now I said all that to say this, uh, not to, not to gain sympathy because you know I'm in great shape now compared to what I was, and I'm hoping someday to be able to get to a position where I can again do real work and you know like earn money and stuff. That would be great. But um, anyway, so not not looking for sympathy. I'm just trying to explain the background of of <laughs> of how I can give some odd answers sometimes. So when I finally came to the point of where I began to re-examine things politically and re-examine things philosophically and religiously and things like this, I had to relearn a lot of what I either knew or didn't know, and I wasn't really sure where I had learned a lot of things to begin with. So for that reason, I'm not really sure, like going back with the, with the email with the listeners' questions, I'm not fully certain if I came up with this myself or if I read it somewhere else, if after I expressed this or if anyone uh, 
uh, knows what I'm talking about with the or with the uh, origin of the state at Jericho and the lawgiver as original sin. If if you've heard somebody else saying that stuff, or if you've if you've read or seen it appear from someone, say prior to then uh, about a year or two ago, um, please drop me an email and tell me because maybe I read it somewhere and then I lost it in my memory and then it just popped back up again as I started reading all this. But my uh, path towards uh, having these theories was uh, was kind of along the lines of I, I began to reacquaint myself with the zero aggression policy. Uh, I'm sorry, zero aggression principle. And in, and in doing so, I immediately, you know, uh, recognized that this was essentially um, identical or the other side of the coin uh, in one way of thinking to the golden rule. The golden rule being do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the zero aggression principle being don't do to others what you don't want done to you. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. Um, so as I began to look at this, uh, I began to realize that, you know, something Jesus said in the, and I should give a disclaimer here, uh, everything I'm about to say, you don't have to be a Christian, or you don't have to be a deist, or you don't have to be a, thea, a theist, or you don't have to be any particular, you can be an atheist, and and I, I'm pretty sure if you if you set aside any prejudices you have against particular philosophies and and any and a particular book that I'm about to mention if you set aside uh, and just look at it neutrally uh, for a moment I, I think everything I'm about to say can be accepted by an atheist just as easy as it can be accepted by a theist um, okay so anyway as I examined the zero aggression principle and really rolled it around in my mind and I compared that to the golden rule and I remembered what Jesus had said Essentially, that this golden rule or the existence of Jesus and his ministry was a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets, uh, that, that, that's all of the existing Bible of the day. The, the law being the first five books of, uh, of the Bible, the, the books of Moses, so to speak. Um, and the prophets being everything else except the songs you have uh, essentially you have uh, in the in the Old Testament or the Bible as it existed in Jesus' day you have the law the prophets and the songs so if you take out the songs which are you know songs uh, the prophets were um, laying the groundwork for what was to come and the law was giving the structure of how Israel as a nation was supposed to exist uh, and how the people were to exist and how the priesthood was to exist and Jesus says that all that is all that is fulfilled it's all uh, it's all wrapped up and it's and it's done it's over it's gone and what you're left with is Jesus's teaching of the golden rule and essentially if you if you embrace that then you don't need the other in in a sense and so I thought about that, and I thought, well, what, what about the, t the Christian teaching of sin? How does this, you know, um, so, so Jesus is saying that he has fulfilled all this written documentation. But where does that leave the concept of sin? Well, according to, the, according to Scripture, um, Jesus' sacrifice, having him as the lamb that was, that was ritually sacrificed, um, 
stops the sin continuum, if you can look at it that way. In other words, uh, we're no longer guilty for the sin of the past. When you, when you sacrifice, and this is in, 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 this is in ancient uh, Jewish beliefs, or this is in pretty much any pagan religion, you, you would sacrifice for the pur- purpose, the blood of the sacrifice was, was for the purpose of paying for uh, previous transgressions or pre- previous sin. So for humanity, the previous transgressions were paid for with that sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, but and so and so that stops the continuum. But but then what about for the rest of eternity? What about for the future and everything? And and so I began to think. Well, let's go back and see, understand, get a better understanding of this original uh, transgression that we're talking about. You know, uh, the the original sin, so to speak. And so I go back and I read that story. And um, I don't know if I can say this without offending a lot of Christians, but but just taking a grain of salt with all of it and realizing that this has been passed through a lot of different people, and you know a lot of time has gone by, and so let's let's not get wrapped up in details of you know exact numbers of days and exact uh, who begat who and all this kind of thing like that. But let's just read this and get kind of an overview of what of what's trying to be said here. And what I saw was this odd aspect of the original sin story that I'm sure we're all familiar with. The serpent in the story didn't really fit the story. You have this, uh, you have the creation coming into being, however, however that you want to, you know, place the creation as, to, as coming into being, and you have people in this setting. And in the Bible, you have, uh, in this perfect setting, you have people existing. And in the Bible, you have, uh, God says to them, be fruitful, go out and multiply, fill the earth. And so, of course, we know how they were going to do that. And so, if, if you believe in God and you believe that he gave them that commandment, you must believe that he knew how they were going to do that. Well, that shoots down um, a lot of traditional thoughts about what this original sin was. Uh, because you know, I don't. I don't mean to be blunt here, but uh, a lot of what people think of as original sin couldn't have been original sin because God commanded them to go out and be fruitful and fill the earth. Well, how are they going to do that? Of course, we know how they're going to do that. And so, uh, what was this original sin? Well, I'm looking at it, and and God gave them basically one order: Hey, do anything you want. Eat anything you want. Do anything you want. Just have a blast. Have a lot of fun. Except don't do this. Don't take on the fruit of this tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. The, the ability to distinguish good and evil comes to us naturally. Now, let's, let's take this to a different animal. Let's say, let's say uh, I've talked quite a bit about the animals that I observe around my yard. So... So let's take into account birds. Uh, in my yard, I have a couple different kinds of birds that are regulars, and I feed them, and they've become very familiar with me. Um, so, for example, I have a lot of sparrows and wrens around my house, and they and they interact pretty well with each other, and they sort of flock together, uh, even though they're different species or, or whatever the classification is. But uh, but they pretty much hang out with each other and tolerate each other pretty well. 
and they act pretty much identically to each other. And among, especially among the sparrows, occasionally, oh, uh, they're thieves. They're constant thieves. Uh, if I throw, let's say I chop up some old dry bread and I throw bread out for the, for the birds, the sparrows will come flocking in and try to get as much as they can. But an odd thing, if one sparrow picks up a piece of bread, another sparrow will prefer stealing it out of his mouth rather than picking up a piece of bread that's right at his own feet. And I believe there's probably something evolutionarily that that caused that preference of behavior to, uh, you know, there was probably something like, at some point in time, there was probably something like a danger in picking up, in bending down and picking up uh, a, a different piece of food. And so it was preferable to steal food that had already been picked up. Uh, I'm just pure theorizing there. Um, but for whatever reason, for however this developed, among the sparrows, there's a serious preference to steal food out of the mouth of another sparrow rather than pick it up off the ground, even if what's on the ground is closer to your feet. Uh, if even if it's right under your feet, that that sparrow will hop quite a distance to steal food out of the mouth of another sparrow. So there's something that has caused that behavior to be preferential, and that is perfectly acceptable among the sparrows. They don't have an attitude with each other when they just go steal one from somebody else, and this process uh, continues with complete. Uh, they're com they're completely comfortable with it. So that tells me that within the nature and within the natural laws of sparrows, theft is okay. It's not, uh, if you can use this phrase, it's not sinful for a sparrow to steal from another sparrow. Their version of property rights is very different from what other animals might uh, consider. So, and, th and then I take this same example and you can and think of uh, of blue jays. Now I have some very aggressive blue jays that are are they have become very accustomed to me, and they will uh, come up to me very close to me and beg for peanuts. I like to throw peanuts out for the for the blue jays, and they'll come up real close to me and beg for peanuts. And a couple of them will even sort of give a little song and dance for me to get me to throw them a peanut. But the interesting thing about blue jays as opposed to the sparrows is that the blue jay no blue jay will attempt to steal from another blue jay uh, once a blue jay lands he will not lands in an area and is ready to, to pick up some food he won't tolerate another blue jay in the immediate area of him he doesn't even like any other bird around him he wants he, he when he lands he owns the property his feet are standing on and he's ready to fight for it and when he picks up a peanut he's ready to fight for that too and so you don't see this theft uh, happening once the blue jay owns it he owns it but oddly enough if i just walk out onto the driveway and throw a handful of peanuts and there's a blue jay very often there's a blue jay up in our tree waiting for such an activity to take place it's against the blue jay rules for him to just immediately fly down and take the peanuts. He must first call very loudly to all the other blue jays and let them know there's food. It's just a it's just a law that they that they follow. They follow it spontaneously. 
And so once he announces enough times that there's food, then he'll fly down and pick it up. And the other, the other blue jays will come screaming in as fast as they can trying to get part of it. But before he comes down and picks up the, the first peanut, he always announces it to the, all the others. Now, taking back to the sparrows, when I've observed this over and over, when one sparrow breaks one of their rules, the other sparrows are merciless. They will fall upon that sparrow and kill him on the spot. And with, uh, they will fall upon him with great abandon. And yet, you never see the Blue Jays ever ganging up on any Blue Jay. They, they are very independent. Even though they have this wider respect of each other to notify each other when there's food available, there, there's, no, uh, there's no capital punishment among the Blue Jays. So then you look at that and you say, well then, it's against natural law for the Blue Jays to kill another Blue Jay. It's against, capital punishment is against their natural law. But for the sparrows, uh, capital punishment is not only lawful, um, but it's common. And so now, these are laws that are embedded into the minds of each and every one of these individual animals. And so my theory is that at some point in time, man was the same way. The laws of nature were in us, were embedded in us, and still are. They're there. They're just waiting. But at some point in time, we decided to step beyond what was what the law that had been given to us, that was the law given to us. And you can look at it from a theological point of view. You, you can say, well, the, the law came to us by our Creator. And now, what do you want to call the Creator? Do you want to call the Creator the processes of nature and evolution? Or do you want to call the Creator a, a man with a beard who sits on a cloud? Or do you want to call the Creator an omnipotent being that has all presence? I don't, I don't care. I, I mean, I really don't care. Whatever you want to call the Creator... However we were created, we were created with certain laws embedded deep within our being, and we know them. Even if we've spent a lifetime uh, being taught not to pay attention to those natural laws, they're down there. They're down there telling us, this is right, that's not right. This is right, that's not right. It's in there. We try in modern society, to ignore those urges as much as possible. But they're there. And this, I believe, is that tree, that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have a knowledge within us of what's good and evil, but we violated that and we took upon ourselves the position of saying, we're going to make up our own laws now. And they're going to have very little to do with those original laws that are built into our being. We're going to make up our own laws, and we're going to, we're going to put ourselves in the position of lawgiver. No longer is it our creator. Again, whatever you consider the creator to be, nature or, or an omnipotent being or a man with a beard on a cloud with holding a lightning bolt. However you imagine... Uh, or however you believe, or however you uh, philosophize, or whatever, um, how, however you view our origin, our Creator set within us certain laws. And then at some point in time, man said, I will take myself above that, and I will put it upon myself to become 
the giver of law. I will make my own laws, and I will inflict those upon other human beings. Now, immediately when that takes place, as soon as the first human being decides that he's going to go outside of the natural laws that he was born with, make up a new law, and then inflict that upon another human being, the moment that he's done that, he's violated the zero aggression principle and the golden rule. So then if we believe that Jesus actually taught these things, and if we believe that Jesus said that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus and his teachings, which are the golden rule and basically the zero aggression principle, if we believe that, then it's only logical to believe that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the law, natural law. And when we violate that and take it upon ourselves to make our own law and inflict that upon other human beings, we are taking of the fruit of that tree and, and partaking of it. That, when that dawned on me, um, I don't know if I've ever read it anywhere. I don't know where I got it other than uh, other than it just dawning on my mind. and Or somebody might say, if you're of a theological tilt, you might say it was revealed to me. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to put upon myself anything that I don't deserve. But one way or the other, this dawned on me. And I said, that that's it. But then this serpent didn't make any sense. Well, what's the serpent doing in the story? So I thought, well, I need to... Find out what else the Bible says about this devil and, and see what I can find out about him. Well, the scripture that commonly um, is accepted as the description of the devil is in Ezekiel chapter 28. And what we find there is the classic uh, version of um, this, uh, this Lucifer, this light bearer, this, uh, this brilliant individual, this shining example of God's creation. Uh, Ezekiel describes this being as uh, as perfect, as living in the Garden of Eden, and as perfect, and remained perfect until the time came that a flaw was found within him, and that flaw was that he decided that he would rise up and be like God. Well, that sounds a whole lot more like what I just described in taking the fruit and making the lawmaker of yourself, is that not making yourself a god? If if the law came to us from our creator, nature, a god, the god, whatever, whatever you believe, if that's where our law came from naturally, from our creator, and if we take it upon ourselves to be the lawgiver, aren't we making a god of ourself and isn't that what the state does isn't that the concept of of believing that a state is legitimate if a group of people can take it upon themselves to make law and we believe that that is legitimate are we not putting them those human beings are we not putting them into the position of lawmaker and isn't that actually making a god of humans. And so then it dawned on me, and I read Ezekiel chapter 28 over and over and over. And there's nothing in it indicating that, there, that this is some kind of serpent devil. 
There, there's nothing there indicating that it's anything other than mankind. Mankind is Lucifer. Mankind, not not really mankind, but when mankind accepts this concept that man is his own lawgiver, when he embraces that, when he embraces the state, he embraces Lucifer. He embraces man as God, man as the lawgiver. And then I was like, well, okay, but now there's, there's another scripture where it talks about where Jesus interacted with the devil. And so I, I went over and I want to see that. And there's a couple examples in the New Testament where that takes place. You can find one example of it in Luke uh, chapter 4. And the interesting thing that happens in this series of encounters with the devil, where Jesus encounters the devil, it culminates in the devil offering Jesus to be the king of all the kingdoms of the world. He sees all through, he's given vision, Jesus is given vision all through time, and he sees all the ancient empires and all the kingdoms of the world and all the empires and the kingdoms to come. And the devil says to him, I can make you the god of all this. I can make you the king of all this. And Jesus rejects that. And there's a lot of theology, and there's a lot of traditional teachings behind everything uh, that I'm talking about. And everything that I'm talking about goes contrary to the traditional teachings of pretty much every uh, every Christian, uh, and as far as I know, every Jewish teacher as well, uh, is in contradiction to everything that I just said. Uh, but I don't care. Um, so, if the kingdoms of the world are the realm of Satan, and the very description in Ezekiel chapter 28 of Satan matches mankind better than any other creature, and there's no other real reason to believe that Satan or Lucifer or the devil or whatever is something other than the will of man, then we're only left with the story of the serpent, which doesn't really fit in the story, unless the serpent is just representative of the will of man to go against what he's been told to do. And so I'm stuck. I'm stuck believing that original sin is violating natural law and man making law for himself and then inflicting that upon other human beings. Literally, violating the zero aggression principle or the golden rule is the original sin. And therefore, fulfilling the zero aggression pr principle or the golden rule is the rejection of the state. And so that's my theory. I, and again, uh, it goes contrary to everything I've ever been taught that I know of. I don't know that I ever picked it up anywhere. Maybe I did. Uh, you know, that's why my brain injury excuse. Maybe I read it somewhere and I forgot where I read it. And then it just popped back into my head at some point in time. So if somebody knows, you know, drop me an email, ben at badquaker.com. If you know, you know, like, oh, well, so-and-so said that in 1942. Well, you know, let me know, because maybe I did read it somewhere. I, I don't know. Um, when we get back from the break, I'm, I'm going to break for a commercial. When we get back from the break, I'll touch on Jericho as the oldest defensive, uh, as the, uh, Jericho as the oldest 
version of the state. I'll touch on that. I won't spend the kind of time that I just spent on the other thing because I want to get over to my mistake that I made uh, at the end of my last podcast. So stick with me through the commercial break. I'll be right back. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy, and Amazon has great prices, and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give Bad Quaker a tiny portion of the purchase. It won't cost you any extra, but you'll be supporting this podcast. Thank you. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to get set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee, and they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website, or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to BadQuaker.com and click on the button for HostGator. And thank you very much for supporting BadQuaker.com. Thanks for sticking with me through the uh, through the commercial break there. Um, now let's get back to what I was talking about there, Jericho. Um, well, first let me just say that all my life, even as a little kid, I was fascinated by archaeology and even... Even not so much archaeology, even just old buildings, you know, old buildings from the, see, <laughs> see what I mean? Old buildings from the 1800s, uh, buildings from even the early 1900s, old factories fascinate me. But archaeology uh, really fascinates me. And um, uh, old, uh, old pagan beliefs and, um, uh, you know, abandoned theologies of different kinds have always fascinated me. Mythology and and uh, folklore; these things have always been of interest to me. So, in re-educating myself or re-reminding myself or whatever, um, I was also looking back on some uh, archaeological stuff. And uh, in the process, I was looking at some of the uh, ancient uh, settlements, like in in Ireland and in northern parts of Scotland that were founded uh, just like almost as the ice sheets were pulling back. There's, uh, there's settlements um, that they've discovered in that area. And so, I, you know, I, I was reviewing this stuff and looking at it and bringing it all back up in my mind and, and uh, renewing my fascination for all this old stuff. And where uh, where I'm at here in Ohio, I have the luxury of being right next to an Indian mound. I mean, it's literally uh, if there weren't trees and and you know structures and so forth, I could I could look from right here and see uh, the Miamisburg Mound, which is a good sized Indian mound. And uh, every time I go to visit my father down in Kentucky, uh, I drive right past the uh, Serpent Mounds, which are also fascinating. And uh, around Chillicothe, Ohio, there's a whole series of, of mounds. And, well, near where I'm at here is a place called Fort Ancient, which is uh, a Indian mounds and, and fortifications, which... Um, you know, this gets a person to thinking when you start seeing some ancient structures that are clearly fortifications and others that are clearly not, or uh, ancient cities that are clearly not fortified or ancient settlements. And so I began putting that together, and I began seeing that there, a pattern that fortifications 
are not necessarily an aspect of civilization. There have been large cities and there have been a lot of ancient settlements going well back into the Stone Age all the way up well into the Iron Age uh, that were not fortified. And how can that be? And then all of a sudden we see fortifications. And of, of course, you know, modern in modern cities, we don't have walls around our modern cities. But, but in a sense we do. We have modern militaries that we can move quickly. And, and, you know, we've pretty much made the fortified city obsolete by doing that. But that's a modern thing. They didn't, uh, in, in ancient cultures, they did not have the capability to quickly move armies, uh, you know, vast distances. So they had to fortify. If, if an army exists... Uh, you have to fortify it. How does an army exist? Well, our army is a product of the state. And, and as I began thinking about this, I thought it, it really appears that fortified cities appeared almost spontaneously at the same time. And that was just a theory. So I started looking into it. When, when did the first fortifications appear? Where did they appear? What, what were the circumstances that brought about fortifications, you know, fortified cities? Uh, were there fortifications that were not cities? I, you know, I started asking these questions to myself. And, and using uh, the Internet and just digging around, and this was part of that process of, of teaching my brain how to think again uh, that I was talking about earlier. And as part of that process, I would literally just spend uh, hours every day for, for weeks on end just digging through, just finding different things and reading and reading and reading. And what I found was that the state, or, the, or I should say the city-state, spontaneously arose in one location. And that was uh, in a floodplain in uh, Jordan. Uh, flood floodplain of the Jordan River in the what we now call the the, uh, the the Jordan River Valley near the Dead Sea, and that city state was Jericho. There is no that we found there is no older fortification, and the unique thing about that fortification is that the farming communities that surround that far, that fortification are vastly older than the oldest fortification at Jericho. So there was culture, there was farming, there was advanced farming um, for literally thousands of years before the need for fortification arose. And so, and so this, was, uh, this was all very intriguing to me. And, I, and, and, it, and there was no, uh, no indication of any other city-states. So if a fortification arose... What were they fortifying against? Uh, roving bands? Um, well, possibly, but a roving band is—it's uh, not necessarily best. The best defensive uh, measure against a roving band is not necessarily a fortified st uh, structure, because here's the problem with a fortified structure: um, the, the the early fortified structure in Jericho couldn't have held more than maybe 20 or 30 people, maybe 50. You might be able to squeeze 50 people into it, and that's about it. But the surrounding farming community would have had vastly more people than that. So so what good would it do to build a fortification uh, to protect 
your community from raiding hordes of of you know migrating people or whatever um what good would it do to build a fortification that couldn't hold the people and your goods uh, there's something not right about this formula so so how what what would develop that would cause you to just build a fortification that can only hold 20 or 50 people when you've got a community of thousands that need to be protected and and very quickly you know and, and we've all, we've all been told from uh, throughout throughout public school and throughout all the the government uh, you know the court historians as some call them that governments arose by people not being able to get along with each other, and so they they decided that they needed uh, arbitrators to you know to have authority to yeah I know yeah yeah but that doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense that we would leap from having leaders and arbitrator our our uh, yeah uh, arbitrate uh, <laughs> people to arbitrate our differences. It doesn't make sense that we would leap from that to the state in a single leap. Now, at the same time that I was reading about Jericho as the oldest fortification, and at the same time I was being intrigued by the small size of the actual fortification of Jericho compared to the uh, abundant population that was in the Jordan River Valley, I remembered something that I had studied way back in the early 80s about uh, ancient pagan gods of that area. And one in particular named, um, and I'm going to butcher his name, but they referred to it as Damuzid, and later it was called Tammuz. And then variations of that spread throughout the Middle East and eventually became, uh, in the Greeks, became the Hercules or Heracles um, the the myth surrounding Hercules, but the original god was Damozid, and um, originally this was a shepherd god. Well, I'm not going to get into that whole thing because I've done that before. But but so I started putting together the time frame when this god, this uh, Damozid, went from being a a um, essentially a shepherd god that was peaceful and you know didn't really uh, cause any harm to anyone to becoming a tyrant god that was fighting wars and and going out and accomplishing uh, these tasks and you know uh, doing all kinds of brave things and became uh, actually as you follow through the the uh, mythology of it um, like the founders of Sparta and the founders of all these different Greek city-states uh, claim to be descendants of Hercules, uh, or if you take this, the story of Damos or Tammuz, um, ancient city-states all up and down the Nile and all up and down the uh, uh, Tigris, Tigris and Euphrates river valleys. My tongue's not working right today. Um, a lot of these ancient city-states like Nineveh, um, Nimrod is a is a variation of the same god of of, of Tammuz or Tammuz. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so a lot of these ancient city states recognize this god as their founder, but yet his nature is so different from what it was before. There's this this departure uh, in the in the nature of this god. When he suddenly becomes violent and suddenly becomes this founder of cities, 
And that happened about the time that Jericho was established. And so I asked myself, uh, you know, what's, what exactly is going on here? Well, the next city-state wasn't founded for thousands of years after Jericho. And it was a good distance away. So the walls of Jericho then could not have been put up. The fortification of Jericho could not have been put up to keep Jericho safe from another city-state if there was no other city-state for thousands of years. So who were the walls of Jericho protecting? They were protecting the original state. They were protecting a group of humans who had decided to make law unto themselves and to inflict that law upon others. You see, it became obvious to me that the inhabitants of the city-state of Jericho were simply thieves that had gotten tired of riding on the highways and stealing what they could, and they settled down in one place and started harvesting off of the labor of a very fertile valley. Because at the time, the Jericho River Valley was extremely fertile. The weather patterns were vastly different than they are now, and that was not a desert. It was a very lush area. And so the thieves of Jericho, it became obvious to me that this was the story. And everything that I looked at archaeologically could not contradict my theory. And the fact that Jericho was a walled city-state for thousands of years before any other state of any form existed, well then... If you don't have a state, you don't have taxation. If you don't have taxation, you can't develop much of an army. You can develop a, a horde of people who you know who raid, but you can't really develop much of a of an organized army without taxation to support them. So Jericho then was a defensive structure of the inhabitants defending themselves against the farmers and the community around them. That's who they were afraid of. And as I put this together in my mind, again, if I've read this somewhere and, and I've forgot it, then please email me, Ben at badquaker.com. Tell me tell me how <laughs> tell me where I read this someplace else. But as I put these things together, it dawned on me that, that I couldn't find anybody else that was teaching these things or saying these things. And I realized all of a sudden this the rest of the story came rushing into my mind and I realized that's why the fanatical hatred of Jericho existed when the uh, libertarian Israelites came out of the so-called wilderness when they, they had wandered in Sinai for 40 years and an entire generation of people who were accustomed to the state in Egypt died off and a whole new generation of people who had never been under the boot of the state who had lived an entirely voluntary society for an entire generation, came out of Sinai. And the first thing they did when they crossed the Jordan River into their, uh, you know, their ancestral land, the first thing they did was attack and destroy Jericho with a vengeance, ripping it down right down to the last stones of the city and killing everybody. And even... Uh, according, you know, they didn't necessarily follow their orders, but the orders were to don't even take the the plunder, burn it all. They they weren't even to take the plunder from Jericho. And this kind of um, wild vengeance against a city seemed to contradict everything that uh, that a, a godly people stood for. So where did this kind of animosity come from? It 
came from the fact that Jericho, the city-state, being represented, was that representation of evil. And then the people of the Israelites went up into the mountains and created. Now, there was some other battles as well that they had to break other small city-states that were, that were controlling the area. But essentially, they placed themselves up into the mountains, not down in the valleys, and they made for themselves an entirely libertarian society for, that existed for 500 years without a central government. Um, and that's quite a story in its own that's right in there in, in the Bible that tells about that. And so for 500 years they existed in an entirely voluntary society. Now there were rabbinical laws, and there were uh, laws that, that you had to follow if you wanted the, the blessings of the priests and this kind of thing. But that was all voluntary. That was it was not a central government. That was the that was, you know, only if you wanted to function within the the religious community and have the blessings of of the priests and so forth. That that was not inflicted upon uh, everybody. That was that was strictly and even uh, even for specific crimes, there were methods of going to safe cities and it, I'm, there's too much there to go into. But uh, and it's varying away from my point anyway. And I'm about to run out of time, so I've spent the whole the whole podcast talking about this without ever getting to my mistake about um, where I was talking about Roderick Long. I was going to correct something that I failed to mention in reference to obtaining a majority of. Uh, uh, anarchists that not only is a majority not not necessary but it's probably never going to happen but but we don't really need a majority um but anyway uh but i'll maybe i can get to that in the next podcast since i've spent this entire one answering that one email i didn't really mean to do that but anyway to to wrap up that thought you know um, I do have uh, articles and podcasts that go into that more specifically and that I don't ramble as much on as I have in this one. And then I go through and actually pick apart some of the, you know, the more specific reasons as to why I believe those things. But again, I don't know how I came to all that, uh, to the conclusions that I came to. Um, perhaps I've read it somewhere and just forgot about it. Or, uh, you know, perhaps it was just a logical conclusion, or if you're of a theological uh, tilt, perhaps it was a revelation. And um, either way, it was one of the inspirations to go ahead and, and found badquaker.com website and begin talking about these things, uh, you know, because I was driving my friends crazy and I was driving my wife crazy and they were like, you know, why don't you have a website and tell people about this? And I'm like, I don't do that kind of thing. And and then they set up the website and they set up everything and they, you know, made the initial contributions and they said, okay, now there it is. Now go do that and stop bugging us with all your nonsense. And so here I am. So now you're listening to me and you're stuck with my nonsense. Well, anyway, I do appreciate you listening to BadQuaker.com podcast, and I appreciate you tolerating my ramblings. And for those, if, if there's anybody left at the end of this podcast who's, who is an atheist and still listening, who, who tolerated all my religious ranting for the last hour, uh, thank you very much for, for putting up with, with my uh, silly mythologies and so forth. And I appreciate you listening. Uh, consider what I've said that it, 
All these things can be accepted even if we don't accept theology. So, Folks, for more on liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to badquaker.com. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye, folks.